Hello, everybody, and welcome to the inaugural episode of the Anxious Girl Podcast. This is really exciting. Um, I'm not going to say it's glamorous. I'm literally in my bathroom um, under a blanket with my laptop in my lap and my mic in my hand. (laughs) So this is not the glamorous studio recording that one would hope for. But you know what? You make it freaking work, people. And that is what we're doing. So thank you for listening. Um, If you follow us on social media at the Anxious Girl Podcast, then you know kind of a little bit about the journey that's come to getting to the start of the pod, which I'll talk about in a bit. But I wanted to thank you all for listening and tell you that This week's episode is an introductory sort of episode talking about the definitions of anxiety and the different types of anxiety and how common they are. Um, And then you're also going to hear from my mother, the one, the only, Lori freaking Beal. And you're going to hear about her story of anxiety and living with anxiety and what that's like. So with that said, let's dive into the first episode of the Anxious Girl Podcast. So before I dive into what really is going to be the meat of today's episode, I want to tell you all a little bit about me so that you know my motivation in starting the pod. Um, If you follow along on social media, you're probably somewhat familiar given what I've been posting on there. But for those of you that don't, um, I am Emily. I'm 24. I'm from California, SoCal to be exact, which is the best part of the state, if you ask me. And I've lived with anxiety my whole life, manifesting itself in different forms. Um, When I was a kid, I had really, really terrible separation anxiety. I actually couldn't do sleepovers until I was about 17 years old. And I'm not even joking, like 17 years old. And even at that age, I would still get a little anxious before I went to sleep. And I had to really talk myself through it and use the skills I've learned in therapy to work through that. Um, So that was tough and always difficult to explain to people why I didn't want to have a sleepover at their house because they'd be like, you've had sleepovers at your house so much. And I'd be like, well, I don't feel comfortable sleeping over at your house. And they were like, why? Why not? And I was like, it's too hard to explain. And even when I was younger, I didn't know how to explain it. I just said I felt scared, which for those of you with anxiety, you'll understand there's always that fear element that's really driving things. Um, Beyond that, I've also just had anxiety my whole life manifesting itself, whether it's fear of elevators, fear of small spaces, um, fear of people I love dying, or fear of myself dying, fear of flying in planes. So it's definitely come out in different forms across the board. It wasn't until I was about 20 years old that I really started to invest in my mental health and invest in making that a priority, which I think is so important. If you don't prioritize your mental health, this is your wake-up call. Do it, people. It's so important, and it'll translate into every avenue of your life. Um, I started really going to therapy at a regimented rate at 20 and have consents, I'm sure, since continued to do so. Um, And it's been really, really 
impactful and life-changing for me in a lot of ways. Um, I'm not scared to fly alone on planes anymore. I'm not scared to fly anymore in general. Um, I now lock the door in one-person bathrooms. I'm not scared of getting stuck in there, which is awesome. I am good with sleepovers. I'm good living on my own. That separation anxiety element has really gone away for the most part. And the big thing I'm working on right now is elevators. So wish me luck with that. If anybody has any tips on claustrophobia and anxiety or how to overcome being anxious about riding an elevator alone, please send those tips my way. With that being said, a little bit about me. Now you know where I'm at. I want to dive into the meat, the nitty freaking gritty of today's episode. So first off, let's break down the basics of anxiety because I know a lot of you listening have anxiety, you struggle with anxiety, but for those of our listeners who don't know, I think this is important to highlight because people typically look at anxiety and they think you're just scared. You're just afraid of something that makes no sense. But the reality is that our fears have manifested themselves because of either trauma or different situations with our brain function and how we perceive things. So I think it's important to really break this down and um, share the science behind this and also share the facts here. First off, the definition of anxiety. Now this differs from normal feelings of nervousness or anxiousness, and this basically involves an excessive fear, which then manifests itself into anxiety. Three out of 10 people you know will be affected by an anxiety disorder and deal with that in some capacity throughout their life. So that's incredible and just something to keep in mind when you encounter somebody that you think has a fear of something illogical. For example, I have one of my friends who's really scared of crowds. And to me, that makes no sense because I'm like, you're just surrounded by people. If anything, I feel safer in a crowd. But for her, it's absolutely terrifying. It's anxiety inducing. She usually takes a Xanax before to just feel calm enough to enter that space. And for me, that doesn't make sense. But then I take a step back and I think to myself, this is her anxiety. This is her fear. This is something that's really difficult for her that I need to bear in mind. And that's how I would encourage anybody listening, whether you have anxiety or you don't, um, to approach people who you might think have unreasonable fears or unreasonable concerns. Take a step back and consider that this could be anxiety and consider also that these people probably need a different sort of approach than the average person would with quote unquote average fears. Let's break down the next sort of facet of this conversation. This is coming from the National Institute of Mental Health. That's the reporter in me citing the um, information here, but I think it's important so that you all don't think I'm making things up. I promise that the reporter in me makes me cite all this information. Um, so yeah, this is coming from the National Institute of Mental Health. And this is something that I think is important to keep in mind and also learn because truthfully, when I was researching for the pod, I did not know this. So the three most common types of anxiety are the following and little insert or footnote here, I didn't know there was more than one type of anxiety. So that was a learning experience for me. I'm going to break them all down in brief detail. So let's just go to the first one of the three that are most common. The first one is generalized anxiety disorder. The second is panic disorder. And the third are phobia related disorders. Now, 
when you get into phobia-related disorders, we've got a couple subcategories in here. So picture we've got number one, generalized anxiety disorder, number two, panic disorder, and number three, phobia-related disorders. And those are the three most common types of anxiety. Now, under phobia-related disorders, we've got a couple different things here. The first is social anxiety. And I feel like personally, this type of anxiety disorder has been getting a lot of attention in the media and in conversations on social media. I think a lot of people deal with social anxiety and have social anxiety, but they don't realize it. And the people around them don't realize it. In fact, when I was reading more about social anxiety, I came to the realization that my best friend has social anxiety. And that never occurred to me until I was researching it. I just thought he was always shy. But then as I was reading more into it, I was like, wow, he had social anxiety when we were younger. So it's interesting to learn about these things and kind of expand your knowledge with them. So that's why I want to talk about this a little more. So social anxiety after that long intro is defined as the general intense fear of or anxiety toward social or performance situations. Now, a good example of this, one of my coworkers has social anxiety and we had to do an event where she was reading a book to a bunch of fifth graders. Keep in mind, she's around my age in her mid twenties. And she was telling me that she was reading the book Everything was going fine. She was enjoying all the cute little kids. And then all of a sudden, she looked up from the book after she took a pause in reading through the book and made eye contact with a few of the five-year-olds, and she completely shattered. She broke. She felt so unbelievably nervous. She started shaking. She was overwhelmed with anxiety. And to me, as somebody who enjoys public speaking, enjoys meeting new people, that doesn't make, quote-unquote, sense. But... When I look at social anxiety, when I look at it through the lens of someone who doesn't just react that way because they're strange or they're different, I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, this is not somebody who we should label as quote unquote weird or quote unquote odd. This is someone who has social anxiety, who's dealing with a legitimate medical disorder and this is how it manifests itself in her life. Now, people who struggle with social anxiety typically worry that their actions or behavior that is associated with their anxiety. So for example, if you stutter, if you start to sweat, if you pass out, those sorts of things, these people who struggle with social anxiety and people who live with social anxiety tend to worry that those actions, those behaviors will end up causing them to be negatively evaluated by people around them, which causes them to feel embarrassed. And for all of us out there, because I know we've all felt embarrassed at one point in time or another, feeling embarrassment in front of a large crowd can be so horrible. And even in front of a small crowd can be horrible. And if you compound that with having social anxiety, I think personally, the impact can be massive. And the difficulty of that is that a lot of people who aren't aware of it minimize it. And I think that that probably only makes that experience worse. So that's social anxiety, something definitely important to be aware of. Now, the next is agoraphobia. And this is something that I'm not gonna lie to you, it's gonna make me sound dumb, but I'm gonna say it. I read the word agoraphobia when I was researching on the National Institute of Mental Health website. And I thought to myself, oh, fear of spiders. Incorrect. I actually have agoraphobia, which is something that I learned upon my research. So hopefully this will be eye-opening for all of you out there. Um, so let's just 
dive in, people with agoraphobia typically have an intense fear of two or more of the following things. So the first is using public transport. Second, being in open spaces. Third, being in enclosed spaces. Fourth, standing in line or being in a crowd. And fifth, being outside of the home alone. Now, for me, the two things that ring true out of that list of five things is being in enclosed spaces and being outside of the home alone. I'm personally good to travel alone. I'm good to live alone. I'm good in all those respects because of how I've worked through therapy and the things I've learned there, though sometimes it's definitely difficult. But in talking to my therapist before I went to Europe for the first time a few years ago, I was telling her how worried I was that I was going to wake up and my best friend who I was going with was going to be out of the room. Even if he was just in the hotel lobby getting a croissant or he left the Airbnb to go grab coffee for us, I would have woken up absolutely terrified. I would have had a panic attack. I would have not known what to do because I would have just felt frozen in fear. And she was asking me what I was scared of. And I was scared of being alone. And she said, well, Emily, I think you're scared of being away from comfort and having to deal with that by yourself. And I was like, you're right. And I couldn't even articulate it, but you're right. That's correct. So for me, agoraphobia and learning about that really hit home because I was like, this is something that I'm struggling with and that I deal with. And even though it's become less of an issue, it's still something that's so real for me. Now, the third type of phobia-related disorder is separation anxiety. And honestly, team, I could write a whole book on this, I feel like, just from my experiences. So for any of you out there that have struggled with separation anxiety, I'm sure you probably feel the same because it's something that's affected you throughout the course of your life. Um, this is something that I found interesting when I was researching separation anxiety. And this is a sentence verbatim from the National Institute of Mental Health. Separation anxiety is a type of mental health problem. When I was a kid, I just thought I was scared. And quite honestly, I thought I was just a weenie. I thought I was a wuss. And I thought I was a weird kid because all of my friends could have sleepovers and could go to camp and not be scared or could go away to fly across the country, which was two fears for me in one of flying and being away from my parents. And I just thought I was strange. When I got older, probably when I was about 15 or 14, I was telling my mom that I was worried I wasn't going to go away to college. I was scared I wouldn't be able to do it. And I distinctly remember this conversation. And she said to me, Emily, you'll grow out of this. You have separation anxiety. I did too at your age, but look at me now. And if you know my mom, you can hear her saying that. Um, if you don't, you'll get to know her on the pod at the end of this episode. But she was right. Um, it took me time to grow out of it. But I didn't realize that there was a thing called separation anxiety until that conversation I didn't know what to make of it or what to do about it because it wasn't something that was discussed. It wasn't something that people talked about. People just told me that I was scared and would laugh at me. And in reality, they didn't understand that I, along with thousands, actually hundreds of thousands of people, because it's estimated that there are more than 200,000 cases of separation anxiety a year, so that's hundreds of thousands of people experiencing this type of mental health problem or difficulty. So I think that's important that we highlight the fact that that's a mental health problem. Now, a little bit more information on this so that you can understand separation anxiety if you personally have not experienced it. A child or a kid with separation anxiety typically worries 
a lot about being apart from family members or people they're close to. Amen. I get that. And the child has a fear of being lost from their family or that something bad will happen to a family member if they're not with them. That's me. I worry so often when I'm not with my parents that something bad will happen to them. And I didn't realize that was a part of separation anxiety. Now, one other thing that I want to note about separation anxiety is that it differs from normal clinginess that you might see kids have. Kids with separation anxiety cannot think about anything but their fear of being separated from this person that they care about, that they feel comforted by and close to. And they typically will have nightmares or regular physical complaints. They might even be reluctant to go to school. And I can tell you firsthand that I've experienced that. Even high school, up through my junior year of high school, the first two weeks, I would get so nervous that I would throw up. I would get diarrhea, not to be TMI, but it is TMI. And I would get so sick that I would come home. And I remember my sophomore year, I told my mom that I wanted to go to the doctor and get my stomach checked. And she said, Emily, I don't think that's necessary. And I said, Mom, why don't you don't why don't you believe me? I'm getting sick every day at school. And she said, it's separation anxiety. I don't think you're actually sick. I don't think we need to get this checked. Nonetheless, she let me still go and get my stomach checked and had a super fun endoscopy. And that was when it kind of clicked for me that I had control in those moments when I felt sick and that I needed to work myself through it because it was my brain trying to tell me that I'm scared when in reality, I could work through it and not feel that fear. Now is the time when you would normally hear a commercial, but the pod isn't sponsored yet, though I know we'll get there. So for right now, I want to tell you about an organization that I think is really key when it comes to embracing your mental health as a priority, and that is the ADAA. ADAA stands for the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, and they have a lot of really good resources on their site with information. Also, just a lot of good tools that we can all utilize, whether you deal with anxiety and depression in your day-to-day life, or you don't. So I would encourage you to get on your phone, get on your computer, get on your iPad, however you use technology, and go to adaa.org. All right, everybody. And finally, on to the last type of anxiety disorder or phobia-related anxiety disorder, rather, that I'm going to be talking about today, and that is selective mutism. When I was researching anxiety, I was really surprised to find this because I've never heard of selective mutism. And granted, I don't have a degree in psychology or anything relative to that. But I figured in my time going to therapy and in my time being friends with many people who have um, anxiety for which they take medication and having everyone in my family, my immediate family, um, deal with anxiety on a day-to-day basis that I would have heard of most of the terms and difficulties related to anxiety, but I had not heard of selective mutism. So that just goes to show you that you might think you've heard about all of it, but you probably haven't. So what is selective mutism? It's a complex childhood anxiety disorder that is characterized by a kid's inability to speak and to communicate effectively in select social settings. So for a lot of kids, this tends to be school. And these kids are able to speak and communicate completely comfortably when they feel comfortable and secure and relaxed. But when they don't, the selective mutism side of things really kicks kicks in and 
more than 90% of children with selective mutism also have some sort of social phobia or social anxiety as well. So you can see that the relationship between the two does make sense if you think about anybody you know with social anxiety and how they go silent in situations where they are overwhelmed by social anxiety. I can think of multiple instances like that with my best friend um, when we were younger and he's since grown through that and is doing awesome. But I can recall instances like that when we were ordering food, even at the Cheesecake Factory, no joke. At the time, I just thought, oh, he's just weird, whatever. He's just shy. I don't get that. I'm an extrovert. And now after researching this and learning more about social anxiety and then learning in general about selective mutism, excuse me, about selective mutism, that opened my eyes a lot. So if there's one lesson to be learned here, it's research before you judge, learn before you judge, because even if you have anxiety, you don't know everything about living with anxiety. And I can attest to that fully. So many people struggle with anxiety on a day-to-day basis and live with anxiety. I think that it often goes overlooked. It gets disregarded and um, it's something that people write off. And for me, that's frustrating, obviously, because I live with anxiety every day. I take medicine for it every night. But I think that it's important to highlight the numbers here, because for those of you listening who live with anxiety, you're bound to know at least three other people who are going to encounter anxiety in their lifetime as adults, according to the statistics. For those of you who don't personally struggle or live with anxiety, you're bound to still face those same statistics of knowing at least three people out of 10 who are going to struggle or live with anxiety in their lifetime. So the commonality of these anxiety disorders is very real. Up to 9% of people in the U.S. who are adults struggle with a specific phobia. 7% of adults in the U.S. have social anxiety disorder. 2 to 3% have panic disorder. 2% have agoraphobia. 2% have generalized anxiety disorder, and 1% to 2% of U.S. adults encounter separation anxiety disorder as something they deal with. Now, this is something that I found interesting as a woman. Women are more likely than men to experience anxiety disorders. So something to meditate on. So why should you care? Well, you should care because in some form or another, you potentially could encounter anxiety in your life, whether that's anxiety that you deal with yourself or anxiety that someone you love and care about deals with. And it's something that I think is important to be educated about so that we can all, one, be empathetic, two, so that we can help each other, and three, so that we can generally open up the conversation about mental health and about anxiety in our society because even though I would say over the past about five years that's become a bigger more widespread open conversation I personally don't think we're there yet I think that mental health needs to be at the forefront of a lot of people's minds and it needs to be something that we discuss that we're educated on that we're empathetic about and that we as a society don't make something negative to talk about. Speaking of not making anxiety something negative to talk about, you all are about to hear a story, or the story actually, of the woman who is my best friend, my superhero, um, who really is a lot of the reason that I am who I am and who's blessed me with so much and I could cry if I continue on that train, so I'm going to wrap it up. This is my mother, Lori Beal, or Spazzy Lori, as many of you know her on Instagram. It's her story of living with anxiety.
So, anxiety. Never really gave it a thought. When I was 10 years old, I was diagnosed with a, quote, nervous stomach. <laughs> Spent a couple of days in the hospital. Went home with this bottle of green medicine that I was supposed to take when I had symptoms of my nervous stomach. <laughs> I learned over the course of the next five, ten years that I really internalized my stress. Never again called it anxiety. It was internalizing my stress. Always in my stomach. Um, once my parents were divorced and I was out of their house, I still had some tendency to internalize that stress in my stomach, but I didn't need that medicine anymore. And again, the word, the thought, anxiety, it just didn't cross my mind. It was the 70s and the 80s, and people didn't talk about things like that. You had a nervous stomach. You internalized your stress. Fast forward 15, 20, 25 years, I have two kids. They're both uh, being treated for anxiety disorders, different conditions for each of them. And I started looking back at my life, and I realized I had anxiety. <laughs> stomach and I think mine was a very environmental situational type of anxiety more than an innate uh, my mom told me when I was in the hospital with my nervous stomach at 10 that when I was young she would wake up in the middle of the night I would be sitting staring at the TV digging holes in my heels <laughs> no reason that was I guess how my anxiety manifested itself I bit my fingernails I Never knew that it was anxiety until I was dealing with my kids and their own forms of anxiety. So I think I'm fortunate, looking back on it now, with almost 55 years under my belt, that mine is more environmental or situational. I don't think I'm an anxious person, per se, by genetics. So I guess mine and my husband <laughs> have the genetics to make anxious kids. I don't know. <laughs> or to cause anxiety, but, um, you know, I now can identify a situation that's not good for me. I have learned how to handle it. I work out. I pray. I read. When all else fails, I just get on a plane and go to work for a week because I'm really good at what I do, and I like what I do, and it takes me to a nice place where I'm centered. Anxiety doesn't have any room. So it's it's a crazy concept now that what we thought of before and how I was diagnosed and said this ucky green medicine that I couldn't tell you the name of. <laughs> but I could pick it out by smell or taste still <laughs> because I had a nervous stomach really was anxiety. I think it's a good thing our society works to identify anxiety and different causes and issues and manifestations and help people deal with it. I don't dwell on the past. I don't have to get to the root of the issue every time. I've just learned how to identify my anxiety coming on and really how to head it off. I'm not always successful, but I'll take an 80-20 ratio. So, yeah, that's kind of my take. It's uh, been an interesting education. I wish that uh, 20, 30, 40 years ago things were talked about the way they are now and handled the way they are, but they weren't. I'm a better, stronger person for it, but it's day by day, and uh, yeah, so thanks for listening. Whew, okay, I am sweating under this blanket in my bathroom, literally drenched in sweat right now. 
I need to a million percent go rinse off um, and then start editing this bad boy to get it up for you all um, ready for you all to listen to it. So I want to thank you for listening. I want to thank you for being interested in what I'm talking about on the pod and being interested in anxiety and in mental health and the importance of that. If you want to send your story into me, whether you want it to be in written form or recorded audio form, like you just heard from my mom, there's info on how to do that on the pod website, which is theanxiousgirlpodcast.com. I repeat, theanxiousgirlpodcast.com. Coming up on next week's episode, I'm going to be talking about triggers. And I know a lot of us have heard joking remarks about triggers like oh my gosh I'm so triggered even I say that but we're going to talk about those types of triggers and also more serious types of triggers so be sure to tune in the anxious girl podcast is researched written produced edited and directed by me Emily Beal with music from Studio Le Bus and sound effects from Mark D'Angelo a disclaimer I don't have a medical degree in psychology nor am I a psychologist or a psychiatrist. I'm merely someone who researches these topics heavily and discusses my analysis of them so we can create a community to discuss mental health and anxiety and also get information out there. If you'd like to learn more about the Anxious Girl Podcast, go to our website, theanxiousgirlpodcast.com.